Good morning and welcome to IFG Live from in front of a virtual Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a programme director here. Thank you very much for joining us for what should be a fascinating discussion fixing adult social care. The question of how to reform and fund adult social care has been asked of and left, un left unanswered by successive governments. Over the past decade, as financial pressures on local authorities have increased, this question has become more pressing. Requests for support have increased, yet fewer adults now receive publicly funded care, leaving some bankrupted by care costs, care costs many to rely on care provided informally by family and friends. The Conservative manifesto promised to begin cross-party talks on social care funding within 100 days. Matt Hancock wrote to all MPs in early March asking for suggestions, which probably counts as beginning, but any attempts towards reforming the system have been overtaken by events. Coronavirus outbreak has placed substantial additional pressure on the social care system, whether it be access to testing, availability of PPE or the safety of care home residents and staff. The crisis has further highlighted that social care is a Cinderella service critical to the working of the health and care system but without the funding, political attention and public support enjoyed by the NHS. But what has been the impact of coronavirus on social care? Which long term reforms of adult social care should the government prioritise? To what extent will these prepare social care for future crises and what impact will coronavirus have on efforts to build cross-party agreement on a solution? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by four fantastic speakers. First up will be Sally Warren, Director of Policy at the King's Fund. Second will be Greg Allen, the Chief Executive of Future Care Capital. Third will be Liz Kendall MP, the newly appointed Shadow Minister for Social Care. And fourth will be Nicholas Timmins, Senior Fellow here at the Institute. Each of our speakers will make opening remarks. I will then ask a few follow up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panelists, please submit them using the Q&A function and you can submit them while we're speaking and I'll then try to get through as many of them as possible. Uh, I'd also encourage you to tweet using hashtag IFG social care. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to our first panelist, Sally Warren. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, and good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you all here today uh, virtually. Um, so I'm just going to talk a bit about the state of social care as it was before coronavirus hit uh, the sector and health and care services more widely. Um, and to do that, I'm going to go through some of the key bits of data. Um, these bits of data are all summarised in the King's Fund um, annual analysis of social care called Social Care 360. And the latest uh, of those annual analysis was actually published only last week by my colleagues Simon and Bemi. So for more detail on the data behind uh, what I'm going to come through, by all means, uh, take a look at Social Care 360. Um, I'm also, as I go through this, when I refer to last year, it will predominantly be the last year for which we have data available, which is normally 18-19, just so people uh, have a sense of time in their mind. Um, and I'll just take us through some of the key parameters around social care, so access, money, what's happening to the provider market, what's happening to our workforce, and finally, but really importantly, what's happening to quality of services. Um, so on access to publicly funded uh, social care, um, what we've been seeing is that more people have been asking for help. So we saw an almost a 4% year on year increase in the number of people asking for help. Um, leading to a total of 1.9 million requests for help in 1819. Uh, this was an increase for both working age adults and older people. Important to say though that there was a really big local variation in the proportion of the population that was asking for help. So if we look at working age adults, for example, there was a 12 times difference between the top 10 and the bottom 10 local authorities in terms of the rate of people asking for help. So a massive uh, variation happening locally. We would expect more people to be asking for help because of normal demographic changes as our population ages. Um, so absolutely expected that the requests increase, but actually what we're then seeing is that fewer people are getting support as a result of those requests. So in particular, fewer older people are getting uh, less long-term support uh, than has been the case. And in the last year, we've seen a 3% reduction in the number of older people getting long-term support. It's quite hard because we don't have enough data in social care to understand what's happening to those people when they're not getting social care? Um, are, they, are their needs being met in a different way through community-based services, through voluntary sector services, uh, more of an asset-based view, or are, um, or are needs going unmet or undermet? And certainly Age UK have estimated that there's around 1.5 million people with unmet social care needs. 
So access we're seeing increase in requests, but decrease in the numbers actually receiving help. Um, on spending, um, the, the real kind of low point in spending on adult social care was in 2014-15 uh, as austerity really hit the bottom for local authorities. Since then, spending has risen, uh, but it remains £400 million below the level of 10-11 in real terms. So although it's improving in recent years, it still hasn't even caught up with 10-11. And again, what we're seeing is this is, an, is not an even spread of cuts. So in terms of looking at spend and cuts per person, for the most deprived 30 local authorities that we've seen a 17% cut in spend per person, whereas for the least deprived 30 local authorities, it's just a 3% cut. So again, variation being really uh, quite stark. Um, a lot of that spending, uh, given that we've not seen an increase in the numbers of people being supported, but we are seeing an increase in spend, a lot of that increase has gone to higher fees being paid to providers. And that was really about trying to both stabilise the provider market that was seeing an awful lot of exit and fragility and to help with higher wage costs because of increases in the national minimum wage. So we have seen fees increase since 2015-16. For example, for older people residential care, we've seen it increase by more than 10%. Uh, since 15-16 and more than a 4% increase last year alone. Similarly for home care we've seen just under a 10% increase over that time period but we're still at a point where um, the majority of uh, providers are not being paid the minimum uh, price recommended by the UK Home Care Association. Most of those fee increases to providers has gone on to an increased wage bill. So the social care wage bill increased by 4% last year, largely driven by the 4.4% increase on national minimum wage. And obviously from April this year, we've had another national minimum wage increase of more than 6%. This is really good news for people working in the social care sector, obviously, but it is a cost that needs to be funded properly by providers and commissioners. Um, if we look at what's happening to the provider sector uh, in terms of particularly trying to understand stability and capacity, um, it's, we've got more data on care homes and nursing homes than we do on home care. So the number of care home beds is falling. Uh, whereas the number of nursing beds is remaining relatively stable over recent years. For home care, we don't have any data that's useful in terms of capacity because home care providers are regulated with CQC, but not for the number of hours they provide. So we can't tell if capacity is going up or down. But we do hear anecdote after anecdote about companies handing back contracts to local authorities because they're no longer commercially viable. And in particular, in the last year, we've seen Mears, one of the largest providers of home care, decide to step out of the market and sell uh, their home, their whole home care business. So providers still quite struggling uh, there. Workforce. Um, so let's think about what's happening with workforce. The first thing to say is despite an ageing population that should be driving an, an expansion of the sector, we've seen job growth pretty much at a standstill. So it was just increased by 0.5% in the last year we have data for. The vacancy rate is extremely high. We have 122,000 vacancies in the sector. That's 7.8% of all jobs compared to a UK industry average of 2.8%. So much higher levels of vacancy. And we also have a very, very high level of turnover. So 30% of all staff in social care leave their jobs in any one year. That's 440,000 people leaving and moving jobs in the sector. That will obviously impact on continuity of care and relationships with people who are uh, having care and support provided to them. So a, a real challenge in the workforce position in terms of not having enough staff to deliver the high quality care that all of us would want. Uh, pay has increased in the sector largely because of the minimum wage increases, but it has increased more slowly than other sectors. And we've seen in the last sort of four or five years uh, a shift where now care workers are being paid less than shop workers and cleaners, for example. So um, in terms of being competitive with other sectors, uh, that's been a real struggle. And in particular, a real issue with pay progression where because the focus has been on um, increasing pay right at the bottom because of the minimum wage there's not been much space to increase pay for people with more experience so somebody with five years experience in the sector gets paid just 15 pence more an hour than somebody with less than one year experience so not much in, uh, incentive for people to stay and build a career uh, in the sector. And finally, let's think about quality of care. So what is the quality that people who uh, rely on care and support to live the lives they want to live? Uh, what's what are we seeing from a quality perspective? 
Well, on regulated services, those services regulated and inspected by the Care Quality Commission, we're seeing more services are rated as good or outstanding, but there's still one in six of all services are below standard. We don't have any quality information on services which are provided through direct payments, so when people directly employ their own personal assistance, etc. On user satisfaction, we've got quite a lot of odd data that kind of it's quite hard to triangulate between different sources. So bear with me as I go through some of these. So two thirds of users of social care say they are very or extremely satisfied with the service they get. That's barely changed in the last five years. It's not entirely clear what's driving that, whether it genuinely is because the quality is very, very good or it's merely that they're grateful to be getting any help at all. And certainly we've got other surveys which contradict that finding. So a carer's survey, for example, has shown just 39% satisfaction with the services they receive for the, the people they care for. In terms of public satisfaction, what we, we have a British uh, a BSA survey that looks at uh, public satisfaction with the NHS and social care. And here we see a dramatic difference between the NHS and social care. As Nick talked about in the introduction, it just doesn't quite have the same connection to public uh, kind of the public emotion. So just 29% uh, of people of the public are satisfied with social care. That compares to figures uh, for the NHS in the 70s and 80s, depending on different uh, services. And it's been 29% since 2012 or thereabouts. So again, we're not seeing much change there. So difficult to understand exactly what's happening with quality because we don't have uh, complete data uh, across the piece aside from regulated services. So overall, I'd say where was uh, social care kind of at, at the turn of the year, but when coronavirus was something that was happening in China and we hadn't quite realised quite what it might mean for uh, our society and our health and care system. I'd say we had an extremely fragile sector. Um, the provision of services was not keeping pace with the need for those services in the population. Uh, providers were struggling uh, to be able to meet quality and uh, pay the workforce uh, what they deserve because local authorities in turn were still dealing with austerity and despite the fact that local authorities have been prioritising adult social care locally there was just not enough money uh, in local government to be able to really support a thriving lo uh, local authority and social care system. So it was in a very very fragile state um, before we then had kind of a crisis of a generation to hit the system so I'll, I'll leave it there Nick. Sally uh, thank you very much. Uh, now on to uh, Greg Allen the Chief Executive of Future Care Capital. Thanks Nick and uh, thanks Sally as well. There's some points that came out of your piece there particularly around data uh, and local variation which uh, ring true in terms of the research that my organisation has uh, has done over recent years. Now Future Care Capital um, my organisation has been around for 70 years. We're a charity and we uh, work with policymakers and health and care practitioners and with those with lived experience um, to publish research in this area. We focus on a number of areas, including data, technology, innovation and investment across health and care and how you scale that as well. So there's some interesting things that this crisis um, has highlighted, I think, in that context for us particularly our consistent call, and Sally's mentioned it as well, um, for better social care data. Because when we look at the data that's available throughout this crisis, what the government's been using, what their advisors have brought uh, to them as well, around the health data for the NHS in comparison with the social care data, we have some significant gaps. And the government really doesn't have an infrastructure on social and uh, for social care data in the way that it has uh, rapidly developed that for health. But I want to talk about three things, uh, including the data piece. Um, one is around, firstly, the, the risk, I suppose, of, of nothing changing and maybe even things getting worse for social care as a result of this crisis. Boris Johnson stood on the steps of Downing Street when he took office and said that he was committed to fixing the crisis in social care. But of course, even in recent days, through his own experience and through the numbers that are coming out of care homes, he's expressed bitter regret at the, the numbers of deaths in care homes. And of course, um, if you look at the focus on our NHS, which is an iconic institution, I think this, uh, this crisis has highlighted um, how social care has fallen behind. Uh, and you could even say there's some sort of, sort of dereliction of duty in a way in terms of how we uh, we, we bridge that gap for social care and the Coronavirus Act um, in part maybe doesn't help either 
in relation to, for example, the, the easements for local authorities around the provision of, of social care. Of course, the other thing this crisis has highlighted, um, I suppose, is that there's a lot of information, tragic as it is, about care homes, <coughs> excuse me, and the deaths in care homes. Uh, but of course, social care covers a number of different groups, children, uh, adults with learning disabilities, adults with disabilities, as well as the elderly frail and those with dementia and in different settings, domiciliary, resident, residential care, etc. And I think uh, just to take one example, the upsurge of uh, reported domestic uh, abuse cases during this crisis highlights um, some of the issues um, that link to uh, what this crisis has done and what it is what is accentuated in terms of people's understanding of what care is about. But I'm not convinced overall that social care has become a priority um, per se or for this government. Uh, those of us who um, talk about social care day to day in our work, I think we are more and more concerned that as we come out of wave one of this crisis, that the focus will be more on the economy and business and getting the country back on its on its feet. And that could cause some real issues for social care in, in terms of it continuing to be uh, stuck in the long grass. Secondly, I want to talk about data, as I started with. Um, we've consistently called for better access to data to inform planning for care. And Sally talked about local variation um, in terms of planning. Some of our, or, or in terms of the, the access, some of our research has, has highlighted the issues around needing to uh, differentiate between local nuances and national planning. And without good data, robust data to analyse, in that context, we fail to plan and we plan to fail. So the critical infrastructure around data uh, is an issue and we need to also invest in technology and uh, the positive impact of that on social care. The fact is that lack of data costs lives and tech can be exclusive, not inclusive. We've seen during this crisis that people have flocked to tech solutions that are not necessarily, for example, disabled friendly. So um, there are issues around gaps in the data um, and also at the same time, I think this crisis has galvanised the understanding of those gaps and perhaps what we need to do going forward. We've called for a long while uh, on uh, the government to consider putting in place national data analytic capability. This is probably the first data driven pandemic and uh, well, it is and that the issues of interoperability between providers and the government and local providers has, has become very clear. And we think there should be a sort of data, a digital duty of care uh, around data going forward. The residential care system is precarious. And if we learn anything from this issue around data during this uh, crisis, we need to think about how we um, give more focus to the duty of care around the, the, the way that we uh, use and access data. The third thing I want to, to finish on in this opening is the role of civil society um, in social care. And what I mean by that is the, the organised charities like my, my own social enterprise um, and other voluntary organisations, but also not forgetting the communities and individuals who become such a key part of uh, what's going on locally to help those people who are vulnerable or in need of some support during this time. And the government has had its head in the sand with social care. Um, in my view, it's averted its gaze and hasn't heeded previous warnings around social care. We've read in the press about previous exercises on pandemic planning uh, and warnings that were, were provided before and whether those have been missed in recent weeks. Yet the profile of social care has never been higher um, and it's laid bare, for example, again, the, the health inequalities and issues that Sir Michael Marmot uh, identified and, and highlighted in his recent uh, review. So just to finish off my piece, I think civil society has an important role to uh, hold a mirror up to government and to add voice for people um, and involve uh, people uh, on the ground. Um, and tackling loneliness and isolation uh, and the experience that folk have had during long lockdown um, is part of that. How do we pull together as communities going forward in a different way. In my own village, I live in a rural setting. There's a chap locally here who's been out delivering hundreds of prescriptions to elderly people and other people in need. And it's those kinds of things that have kept local communities going uh, whilst the policy picture is, is ever shifting. So just to finish on my piece, um, I think if the virus has taught us anything, we need to approach the, the design and delivery of health and care 
uh, as a shared endeavour. And I'd say that's that's for the benefit of all. Brilliant. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Greg. Uh, Liz has been having some technical difficulties, uh, so I think we're going to go to Nicholas Timmins uh, next. Uh, so, Nicholas, over to you. Ah, right. OK. Um, well, I mean, the impacts of coronavirus on social care has clearly been huge and not for the good. I mean, the terrible stories emerging of what's happening in care homes. It has put it in the spotlight. Uh, and in a sense, you know, and it, I mean, social care's major problem has always been that this is largely invisible. It happens in people's own homes and it happens in care homes, which by and large, you know, are not many of which are not that well plugged into their local communities. So it tends to be invisible and therefore tends to be easy to ignore. This has put it in the spotlight. Um, but in terms of the longer term impact, well, I'm not so sure. I mean, if you if you stand right back, you know, the, the, we've had a problem with social care for 20, 25 years. And, that, and I've always sort of looked at it essentially as a kind of four part problem. You know, the first part is where does the balance of responsibility lie between the taxpayer and the individual? In other words, how means tested is it? How much comes for free? What should your savings in old age be used for? Should it be look after yourself or to pass on an inheritance? All those arguments which were addressed by the Royal Commission back in 1999 and which the Dillnot report addressed. So there's the there's that question of the balance between the individual and the state. The question then is once you've decided where that should lie, how do you fund it? So does it come out of general taxation or do we look for some earmark tax or a social insurance type model? Problem number two. Problem number three is once you've decided all that, what is the quality of care that is provided by the taxpayer? What, is, you know, what are the quality of services? And that has, clearly has a lot to do with how well people are paid in this sector, what the prospects are, is it seen as an important part and value part of work? So there's the quality issue. Yeah, and then there's how it's organised, you know, the, the split between the NHS and the government into that level and the fact that it's a deeply fragmented and very privatised uh, sector. So those are the sort of four problems. What coronavirus has done is focus attention on the last two of those, which is the, the quality of care that is being provided, the fact that the people in, in social care are very low paid, as we've heard from Sally's data or what have you, and this is very fragmented and therefore this has been a real challenge to sort out things like PPE. I mean, sorting out PPE has been really difficult anyway. Sorting it out for the care home sector has clearly been enormously difficult. And to be fair, the one bit that has not really received a lot of attention in this is the section of the social care market where people are being looked after in their own homes, which is even more fragmented and individualised than the care home sector. So there's been focus on that. And one would hope that one of the effects of this will be that this area will come back into the spotlight, stay there, and that there will be some attempt to deal with it. It might be that we deal first and better with the, what you might call the low status, low pay issue, because we're still a million miles away from addressing the first two parts of the problem that I set out, which is the balance between the individual and the state and how we then fund whatever we decide to do. Uh, you would hope this might trigger something. Grace talks about that, but I'm—I wouldn't be wildly optimistic. We've been around this course so many times, and whilst there is an enormous sense of shock at what is going on at the moment uh, in the public, you know, will that translate into action? Uh, I'm—you know—I'm somewhat struck by the fact that there was an enormous sense of shock over Grenfell Tower, uh, and three—you know—almost three years on, we still have loads of buildings with dangerous cladding on. If there's been a fundamental change of attitude towards social housing more generally and how we tackle that, it's not very visible. So you can have these moments of great national shock that don't in the end translate into a different policy. So I don't want to be totally gloomy because I hope this will finally trigger some change in this area, but I think it's going to, it's, it's far from certain that it will. Thank you, uh, Nicholas. I just want to pick up on one of the, the points you made about how a kind of a spotlight has now been shined on this. I think one of the, the biggest um, barriers to reforming system has always been lack of public understanding of what the social care system is and does. Do you, do you think that this crisis could at least improve people's understanding of the system? Well, I think it, it understands, it, it, it will improve people's understanding of the sort of pressure that social care is under and the social care homes are under 
But what it's not shining a light on is the split between who is responsible for what in terms of funding. You know, the bits, you know, the fact that we know in many care homes, the people who pay fees are having to subsidise the fees of people who are receiving care from the local authority. None of that is coming out in this current debate, because in a sense, that is not the issue. The issue is a much more pressing one of care homes lacking support and people dying in them. But that, but that doesn't extend to the better understanding of the how the system works in terms of its finances. Thank you. Um, uh, sadly, uh, Liz Kendall's technical problems have proved terminal, uh, but fortunately we have uh, sufficiently high quality panellists uh, that we can continue uh, without. Um, a few of you uh, raised the issue of the kind of the provider market, um, who's delivering, that it's quite fragmented and the sort of financial challenges that some in that provider market are having. Uh, Sally, a, kind of a question for you on what your sense is of what impact the kind of the crisis has had on that financial sustainability of care providers. Yeah, hi Nick, thanks. Um, and just uh, to pick up, I know there's been a question about uh, sort of territorial footprint. Um, most of the data I'm talking about is England rather than UK and actually most of it when we're talking about fixing adult social care tends to be England because Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, it's a devolved matter and have, have kind of come up with their own ways to fix the how to pay for care. So it's an England discussion. So um, what the, the coronavirus uh, crisis is um, massively increasing financial pressures on providers when they were already running at extremely tight margins. So uh, they already needed to absorb about a 6% um, increase in the national minimum wage uh, from April. What they've then been um, hit with since then is obviously increased costs where they're having to uh, use more PPE than they normally would uh, be required to use and the cost of PPE has risen dramatically. So they're, they're buying more at a higher unit costs, so that's increased their cost prices. They're also, in terms of increased costs, obviously if they have staff who are needing to isolate because they have symptoms and therefore they can't uh, be working, so they're having to quite often pay overtime and more agency staff to be able to deliver enough care for the people they uh, are providing care and support for, so that's increased costs. But we're also finding, so that would be kind of what you would think, okay, that's the sort of normal pressures that the providers are under, are all quite difficult, but but then actually what we're also seeing is that fewer families are wanting to put uh, their relatives, particularly older people, into care homes right now because all they're seeing is headlines of how awful it is. So actually we're also seeing providers predicting um, quite a reduction in occupancy. Um, this will both be local authority funded but also critically privately funded individuals and those privately funded individuals, rightly or wrongly, do tend to pay a fee level that cross subsidises other users in the system. So if the occupancy of those privately funded individuals starts to reduce, that fundamentally brings into question the, the financial stability of that provider. So we've seen a number of providers indicate that they think occupancy could reduce by as much as 20% over the next couple of months. So what we're going to see is a set of providers really challenged. Most providers in this sector are very small providers. I know that the kind of the public view is they're very, very big kind of national companies backed by private equity. There are some of those less than 10 percent. The vast majority are small kind of one or two homes, one or two uh, branches of uh, home care providers. They don't have a lot of resilience to be able to deal with a financial shock. So the real risk is that you could see a lot of providers uh, need to exit the market over this period, just at the point where actually we have huge numbers of people needing this kind of support um, during the crisis and coming out of it. Thank you, Sally. And uh, Greg, just picking up on that, um, clearly there are quite a lot of civil society organisations that are formally involved in the kind of direct delivery of what we were uh, of publicly funded social care. But as you mentioned, there are kind of lots of other organisations playing a part in supporting those communities. What's your been your kind of general sense of how kind of civil society, how that sector is doing it, its financial health and how ready it's going to be uh, to provide support? Thanks, Nick. Before I answer that, if I could just pick up a point um, from from Sally in terms of the the market and 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 data as well and digital. I think when you look at uh, larger providers and some of the uh, more dom domiciliary care providers as well, perhaps you could argue they're more digitally mature um, than than others, uh, and so they've been able to react and help their their employees, their staff, um, in terms of doing things more innovatively 
which I think sets uh, the scene for the future in terms of the, the kind of collection of electronic data. It's just a point I, I wanted to pick up there. But in terms of civil society, I mean, if you if we think about what civil society is about, um, and I mentioned organisations, and I mentioned communities and individuals, and, uh, you know, it is a tough time for uh, charitable organisations, voluntary organisations. We, we know that from the outset, uh, even in the first couple of weeks of this crisis, uh, quite a number of organisations um, immediately found the financial position very, very challenging. And uh, NCBO and other uh, bodies and organisations have, have highlighted that. Um, and if you put that in the context of the support that's come from government, of course, it's great that uh, Rishi Sunak has provided a lot of money for hospices immediately. Um, and I mentioned that I, I work with hospice care in Devon, and that's that's very welcome. But of course, uh, organisations in civil society and community groups, um, they have different roles in terms of how we support this, this system. And let's remember we're talking about people here. We, we often talk about the social care sector or system, um, but actually we're talking about people and their lives and supporting people, whether it's through service delivery um, or, or lobbying, giving a voice and advocating for people who, who can't do that themselves and involving them. These uh, charitable organisations and community groups have got a huge role to play in that. So I think that um, organisations in, in my sector uh, are doing their very best under very challenging circumstances um, and working closely together where they can. And, I, and I've already given a very sort of small example in my own local area of, of some action in communities. But I think increasingly, if we think about how we can almost co-create a future for, um, you know, how we steward great health and well-being and the best care in communities. This goes beyond just, just I say, the provision of care in care homes and to other people in receipt of care uh, in different groups. It, it's about the way that communities come together, uh, employers, businesses, um, and uh, how, we, how we design communities to make it much easier for people to keep healthy and receive care in new, new ways. Thank you, Greg. Well, I'm going to take some um, questions from the audience. Uh, so uh, a question here, I'm going to come first to Nick uh, and then to Sally. Um, do you think the COVID crisis is going to change people's attitudes to working in the sector uh, negatively or positively? And is there more which can be done to encourage people to work in the sector? So to you first, Nicholas. Uh, the honest answer is I just don't know. Uh, I think it will scare the life out of some people and for others it will be sort of inspiring and something that we, there's a very, very worthwhile job and people will want to do. And I think there will be both reactions. Uh, which of those will play out as, you know, as the larger of the two? I simply have no conception, I just don't know. And Sally? Uh, yeah, hi, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, as Nick says, it's difficult to to kind of try and judge that one, isn't it? But um, I, I think as well as kind of what's actually happening in the COVID crisis in terms of there's positive, there's positive sides and it's bringing some uh, visibility to the sector that there hasn't been before, but it's also showing people that the job really is right on the front line. So that's a kind of plus and a minus. I think one of the things that it's maybe worth us talking about, and we haven't raised it yet, is is the economic consequences of COVID. It's likely to be uh, a recession, the likes of which many of us may not have experienced in our lifetime. Um, that will mean that potentially the sector uh, actually in the short term benefits from being one of the parts of our industry that will definitely continue to grow in this period. So actually what you might find is that people are coming for a whole host of reasons to do with actually it, it becomes a safe place to work in an economy that's uh, broadly struggling. But the difficult bit then is to understand to what extent will people then stay in the sector. So this is where you get to important questions around pay progression, around career development. Um, and I think it's some of those things that are really important. Um, what we tend to find is that people come into the sector, quite enjoy it, but then don't really know where they can go within the sector because there's 20,000 separate employers. It's difficult to be able to plot a career, unlike in the NHS, where it's much easier for you to kind of plot your career uh, to kind of think I can I can do 
20 years here and kind of I can understand how to move my role. So I think there's something really important about how do providers come together to be able to create more of a shared career for individuals to be able to retain staff, because I think we might find in the next couple of years that actually recruitment isn't the problem it's been over the last few years, but retention becomes absolutely critical. Thank you, uh, Greg, and I think you wanted to come in there. Yeah, thanks, Nick, and and uh, thanks to the uh, comments from Sally and Nick as well. I think uh, for me, I've worked in the NHS um, for, for many years prior to the sort of job I'm doing now, and you're absolutely right. The, the pay framework and the ability to plot your career, in a sense, is much more clear than it is for social care, I, I would argue. But the point I want to make is about um, unpaid or informal carers, if you like, which again, this crisis has highlighted. Actually, we talk about the size of workforce and the turnover and, and it, all of those things. But the largest care workforce in this country are those people providing care, family, friends, neighbours, and doing that uh, for no money for the most part. And the, the, the value of that financially, if you could put a value on it to the economy, is, is billions. And I think that, that in this crisis, we need to recognise that uh, people are continuing to do that uh, at a time of great stress and challenge in lockdown um, and with the challenge of social distancing. And in terms of how we might look at developing uh, the unpaid care workforce, I think that's something the government and other policymakers need to look at because in my own organisation, we've um, produced some e-learning, for example, to support un unpaid carers suffering from mental health issues or caring for someone with mental health issues. And there are many other organisations out there doing that as well. Um, but how can we actually uh, build on that, uh, looking at the value that these folk um, are bringing to, to our, our the provision of care outside of the, the formal um, care sector, so to speak? Great. And uh, Greg, while I've got you on, there was a, a question here for you from uh, Joan Munro uh, on your data asking if you could say a bit more about what sort of care data you think should be gathered and how it should be used and by whom. Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, in terms of in terms of data, um, there are there, there's a need for local providers to be clear about what is happening within their organisations in terms of the incidence of sickness uh, and other uh, almost basic data that you'd expect providers to be able to um, collect and use day to day. And I think those are important things at a, at a local level, at a micro level almost. Um, but I think I'd like to start with uh, how the, the, the government, how nationally we improve the uh, capability and capacity around data analytics. So um, when you when you look at the mortality data, for example, that we've had so many problems with at the government briefings, when, when people are demanding mortality data at the same speed from social care as with health providers, it's been really challenging. So I think there, there are so many types of data that are important to gather depending on the circumstance and whether we're focusing on uh, the, the sustainability of a type of provider etc or something else but the point is that how do you um, how do you disaggregate the things that are most important for addressing local variations but also how do you bring together at a national level that capability uh, that provides policymakers to um, drive better sort of data driven technology and other ways of tackling health inequalities. So um, I think there are different ways of, of looking at this from both the national and the local perspective. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but that's that's a sort of starter from me. Thanks, Greg. Uh, uh, Sally, um, we've had a couple of questions about the kind of the accountability arrangements uh, on private providers and the kind of the data they uh, have to publish. I mean, you guys obviously um, the King's Fund use a lot of the data. I mean, do you think that private social care providers should be required to provide more detailed data, uh, for example, on number of deaths, etc.? Uh, what, what are the kind of reforms you'd like to see there? Thanks, Nick. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, and I think uh, the first thing to do is sort of put some parameters around what we mean when we talk about private social care providers. So at the moment, social care providers 
be they private or voluntary sector, if they're funded by local authorities and therefore pr providing publicly funded care, they have to provide certain information through to their local authority to CQC uh, and skills for care. Um, where we have, um, so we, we do have kind of key gaps. I think there are some key gaps about we don't really know what's happening in the genuinely privately funded and privately provided sector. So we don't, we kind of don't really have very good data on that. We particularly don't have good data about when somebody's coming to a first contact with the system, kind of has a need and doesn't doesn't meet the criteria. What we don't have is data to, to know what happens to those individuals. Are their needs just not met? Are their needs met by informal carers? Do they buy care themselves to meet the needs rather than having it be funded by the local authority or any combination of that? So we have a real blind spot about not really knowing what's happening when need isn't being met. Whereas in the NHS, what we tend to know is we know the size of a waiting list and we don't have the equivalent of, of kind of that sense of what's happening when need isn't being met uh, immediately. Then I think there are some kind of accountability questions which are about accountability to the individuals that those providers are paying for as well, as well as kind of accountability and information to government and the public sector to aid with planning. Uh, and I think it is really important that providers are keeping families and relatives really closely in touch. I think we've seen some absolutely great examples of that. Um, and I know it can be COVID can really be a, a story of doom and gloom and the headlines are always very, very challenging. But I think we've also got to remember that there's hundreds of thousands of people working in the sector every single day going above and beyond to try and provide the best quality care they possibly can to the people who rely on social care to live the lives they want to, to live happy lives, sad lives, frustrated lives, excitable lives, like the lives we all live. Other people who need care and support should absolutely be able to live those lives. And I think that what we need to do is quite rapidly learn from the best practice and where have providers been really good at connecting to their families, to their local communities and being transparent about what's happening in their care homes and in their home care services versus where is it that is actually been more of a struggle for families to be able to understand what new protocols are being put in place about PPE, about visiting hours, etc. So as ever in the sector, we're seeing huge variation um, and we need to learn from the variation and try and aspire to be uh, at the top end of the variation, not the bottom. And Greg, did you want to quickly come back in there? Yeah, I just a point on the long term for you know the vision, if you like, for for data in this context. I think there's a lot of focus in social care around the monitoring of data, um, and really we need to move into a world where there's a lot more uh, opportunity to analyse and use that data, as we've been saying. So, uh, that you know there needs to be good public sector and service user engagement as we go forward, and uh, almost a sort of open analytic analytics practice around. It a robust digital um, and data infrastructure. So we need people who have also um, got the know-how and the skills to be able to access that data and work with providers where a lot of it is, is locked up. Um, and I think that that's something that is really important for the future is building that capability and capacity at a local and a national level. Thank you. OK, a question here for uh, Nicholas from Anonymous. Uh, would you expect the government to step in as a provider of last resort should one of the big providers go under? And might that change the terms of debate about where responsibility lies in terms of state and private sector? Well, that's a very good question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> would it come in as a provider of last resort? I, I suspect in these circumstances, it might um, if you go back to Southern Cross, it managed to avoid that. Uh, but that was in clearly very different circumstances to the ones we currently face. Uh, but I mean, to go back to Sally's point, the challenge here is not just what might happen to one of the big providers, it's what's going to happen to the sort of Italian and very small providers who will have even less financial resilience than the, the big providers. Uh, and it's quite difficult to work out how the government would go in one by one, bit by bit over the country as people fail. It's going to be a huge, huge challenge. So I suppose, having a question dropped on me out of the blue, I suppose it is conceivable if a big private goes under, the government will step in. But the challenge may well lie not in a big group going under, but in some of the very small homes reaching just a financial dead end, in which case the government will have to come up with some other sort of scheme to keep these places going. And Sally, did you want to come back on that? Yes, thank you, Nick. So um, I should explain this is somewhat of my specialist subject because um, 
when I was working at the Department of Health and Social Care, um, I led the team that came up with a policy about difficult to replace providers. And then I went to the Care Quality Commission and had to implement it. And that's the point when you realise, I kept thinking, which clever so-and-so came up with this policy? Because it's really hard to implement. And I had to go, oh, it was, it was me. Um, it's an important lesson in implementing policy to have to implement your own policy. Um, so in terms of uh, provider of the last resort, the law already sets out that local authorities are the provider of last resort. So if a provider fails in their local area, they need to step in to provide alternative care. That's kind of supported by the Care Quality Commission overseeing the financial health of the most difficult to replace providers. So the biggest ones that failure would mean that multiple local authorities and regions were hit. Um, I think it's fair to say that at a sort of an individual provider failing in an individual local authority happens regularly. Um, local authorities ha are capable of being able to arrange uh, to deal with that. I think, as Nick says, the issue will come when it's multiple small providers, potentially with a medium or a bigger provider, when basically you've got multiple failures happening. How realistic is it for local government to be able to arrange alternative care or step in and provide the care themselves? Um, and obviously when they're doing that, they may well need financial support from central government to enable them to meet their legal requirements as, as the provider of last resort. So the legal structure is there. Um, it hasn't been tested at the scale of failure that um, a massive shock like this could create. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, to a certain extent, this entire COVID period is, is kind of calling into question what's the private sector and what's the public sector, given, what is it, 50% of all workers are currently paid by um, the Chancellor's furlough scheme. So the, the kind of, I, I think the boundaries and therefore what's the corporate responsibility uh, of private the private sector may well be quite an issue of debate politically over the next few years and social care will absolutely be part of that, given we've got quite a mixed economy. Thank you. OK, well, this next one is, is quite a tricky one and I'm, I'm going to come to all of you on it. I'm going to come to Nicholas first. Uh, so there's someone has asked um, if the panellists could outline what they believe is the most pressing issue that needs to be resolved in the social care sector and what the potential solution might look like. Uh, clearly, we could spend the rest of the time on that, but perhaps if, if you could briefly uh, say what you think the most pressing issue is and what the potential solution is. So come to you first, Nicholas. Uh, well, well, the two most pressing issues are the same as they are in the NHS at the moment, which is uh, PPE and, and testing and getting both those sorted out properly. And that's clearly crucial on, you know, across the entire issue of, of, of coronavirus. Um, in, in terms of what happens next, then, well, I think the most pressing issue in the sense that it is the one that can begin to be tackled are issues around pay levels, status of people who work in social care. I mean, that is something that you could begin to tackle, uh, both in terms of society's attitude to it and government support for it, uh, faster and more easily than you could tackle the much bigger questions about how do we fundamentally reform the sector. So I think what you need to do is take take the first steps you can take, which are around which are in those sorts of areas as fast as you can, because you can get you can do something about that much more quickly than you can tackle the whole the really big issues about how we fund and organise social care. Uh, Greg, I'm, I'm going to come to you next. Thanks, Nick. Um, well, I've talked a lot about data and civil society, so I'm, I'm going to exclude those from this point because I think those are clearly at the front of my mind. But if I um, look forward, uh, I, I would say, I mean, Liz, Kendall isn't here today to talk about Labour's position. I remember at the party political conferences last year, uh, the announcement around the vision for a national care service. I think that there's something about the the parity uh, between social care and our NHS which needs to be resolved and I think this crisis has really highlighted that and I think part of that is about the way that government uh, and other policymakers go about enhancing the the, the way that we uh, clearly know there is huge value in this sector and how we value the people who work in it more. But I think for me, there's something about how this goes beyond government and policymakers and about how you involve communities in the future of care. 
um, that is beyond the provision of care in a care home, for example, and how it all fits together. And I think in the same way as we've got to maybe review the way that we work, travel and use offices uh, in our employment, I think we need to look at the way that we pull together a society and communities around, you know, how we collectively steward that that health and well-being and care in, in the future. Right, and Sally. Great, uh, thanks, Nick. Uh, and it's good to be able to go last because I can kind of uh, not not repeat what others have said. So, um, assuming that the sort of the immediate COVID needs on like PPE and testing, etc., is out of scope here, the most pressing pressing issue for me, whenever it comes to reform of social care, is making sure the current safety net is adequately funded. Because I and I, when I mean adequately funded, I mean adequately funded so the quality of care is high enough to mean that people are living good quality lives that they want to leave, that staff are being paid a decent uh, salary for the kind of work they do, but absolutely critically that access and eligibility is such that we don't have the level of unmet need and undermet need that we're currently seeing, which is having such a burden on informal carers and families and also meaning people just aren't able to live the lives they want to. So I think for me that is always the number one thing because it's only after you've got your safety net properly secure can you then have a debate about how do you want to extend the government eligibility how do you want to share the burden the cost between the individual and state so the classic kind of dill not commission question or royal commission question to me that that becomes after you've got a very strong safety net for the people who currently rely on social care Thank you. And Sally, while you're on, I'm going to come back to you on a, another question. Um, so someone has asked um, your view on the kind of long term uh, kind of merits and demerits of an insurance based system uh, as opposed to a purely taxpayer uh, funded system. I, I think the King's Fund have done some work on this, uh, so I'm going to come to you on that. We have. Yeah, uh, great. Good question. So I'm going to split an insurance question into two different ways to think about insurance. Uh, the first is a voluntary insurance model where we all individually choose um, if we do or don't uh, want to take out uh, insurance. Uh, really simply, that will not work. It has not worked anywhere globally. It will never, ever work. Uh, it's a waste of time talking about it, thinking about it. So no to voluntary insurance. Um, and that therefore means you're always getting into a state insurance, a mandatory insurance scheme. Um, depend and you can design that in lots of different ways um, but it's a mandatory insurance scheme in which case it it doesn't feel all that different to a tax provided system it's just uh, where is the burden of that kind of in effect are you is it a normal kind of taxation based system or is it individuals at 65 or at 40 are being asked to contribute a certain amount of money but th but the core bit is only mandatory insurance works and that therefore means you're really just thinking about where is it that you want the burden of the cost to fall on the population? Do you want it to be through the normal taxation system or do you want it to be quite specific to population groups, in which case a kind of a hypothecated standalone insurance model could potentially work? But it would mean all of us would need to be paying in different models. So quite a lot of them internationally are at age 40, you start to pay in one or two percent and your employer matches it as well. Some interesting add ons where in some countries, if you're single, you pay a slightly higher premium because you won't have informal carers potentially to uh, to rely on uh, in retirement. So there's there's lots of detailed question of design, but the fundamental is only a mandatory insurance scheme will actually solve the issue. Um, a voluntary insurance scheme will not work. Uh, I could get into a lot of detail about why it won't work, but just rest assured it's never happened anywhere globally. And I have every confidence in the insurance market that if they felt it could work, they would have been able to make some money out of it over the last 30 years and they haven't. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, Nicholas, I think you wanted to come back on that. Uh, well, uh, I agree entirely with everything Sally has said. Voluntary cannot possibly work. Um, I would make the point that I don't think there is a perfect solution here. Uh, that however however we in the long run decide we're going to fund and organise social care, there is not a completely right answer. It's probably more important that we actually do something. Uh, and uh, you know, so it, it may be an obvious point to make, but there is something called the Dillnot stuff, which was legislated for, it's sitting on the statute book. If a government really wanted to get on with this, it could do Dillnot as a kind of first step and we could then carry on the debate, the longer term debate about how we fund this further 
and whether we want them to adapt what is there with Dill not. But it's a first, it would be a first start that would get you going. Uh, and it slightly baffles me, given that the, gov the government of all colours for the recent years will be saying we need to, we need to do something about this. Why at no point has it gone back and said, right, let's do Dillnot as a starter, and then we can carry on the debate about what else we do on top. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to try and squeeze in a, a couple of uh, final questions. So, uh, Greg, I'm going to direct this one to you, but other panelists uh, shout if you have views. So, uh, it's from Anita Charlesworth, who asks: uh, Given that there are over 40,000 care settings across almost 20,000 providers, and little by way of terms of uh, standard terms and conditions, if more money was put in to improve pay in terms and conditions, how would we make sure this actually reached workers? Well, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, well, I think that uh, going back to the, the points I made about the, the NHS, um, I remember 15 years ago or so um, when the Agenda for Change pay framework was brought in for uh, you know, it's, it's not been a pay framework that everyone's been a fan of, um, but drawing on Nick's point about doing something, I think that there is uh, there's something about how you uh, support people through development and link that to their pay uh, in a way that is uh, done consistently and nationally that that could work uh, in a different way to what happens um, in, in care at the moment. So you know I don't profess to have the the best solution for this, but I do think that there is that link between uh, ensuring that through uh, a kind of clear line of sight from government funding and money and workforce on the front line that there is a way of directing that through something that is more formal and consistent on a national basis. Now that agenda for change pay framework has gone through different iterations and in recent years austerity and other things have caused that to, to change as well through need. But I think it's a good starting point maybe to, to think about something like that, um, but something that also has flexibility in it. Thank you. And, and Sally, did you want to come in there? Yes, thanks, Nick. And hi, Anita, as ever, uh, a, a good question. Um, so I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head with this question and there's so many things in social care where you'd like to be able to do it because you can absolutely see the benefit that comes of it but it's a real struggle in terms of um, how you can actually implement it. And I think paying people more, rewarding them differently is absolutely a, cl a classic example of that. Personally, I think the only way you can do it right now with the current structure of the market is to introduce a separate minimum wage for the social care sector, which is higher than the normal economy-wide minimum wage. And therefore it's a legal requirement for all providers to meet that. I can't think of any other way uh, that you can absolutely guarantee that that kind of money from central government to local government to fee providers actually gets translated into pay for staff because you can't guarantee it through contracting with local authorities because not all providers um, contract with local authorities. So I personally think the only thing you could do now would be a different national minimum wage. But I think this does, it, it creates the framework for why do you then need to think about how is the market structured uh, in a way that means that you've got the ability to implement some things on a sector-wide basis rather than provider by provider. Thank you and I'm going to try and uh, quickly squeeze in one final question uh, to Nicholas Timmins because uh, I believe he wrote a report on this subject uh, last year. We've had a question, uh, it feels there's been more talk since coronavirus of the full integration of health and social care into one system. Uh, so what are your thoughts on integration? So I slightly missed that question. Can you try it again, Nick? Oh, what are your thoughts on uh, greater integration of the health and social care systems? Uh, well, where, did, where does one begin? I mean, clearly they do need to be better integrated. The, 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 you know, the, there's a lot of work going on currently um, through the care system to try and make that work better. Some people might want to sort of bite the mega bullet, say part of the problem is that social care sits in local government and NHS care sits in NHS, the two don't come together, but the thought of the battle that you would engage in if you tried to move that boundary fundamentally, I think is, is it would be a huge challenge. 
there's a lot of it, we, we might actually take a look at Scotland, uh, which has been working with joint boards to try and integrate care better there. And we can see whether that is working in any way better in, in north of the border than it is working south of the border. We might get some learning from that. Um, so that's my initial answer for that. I'm OK, sure and uh, very quickly, I think both Sally first and then Greg uh, want to make a final comment on that. Great. Sally. Thanks, Nick. Um, so I think better join up of services, absolutely fine, bit of a no brainer. It's going to be good experience, better experience for individuals. But too often when people say integration, what they mean is let's move social care into the NHS. All sorts of complications about that. I think the key point I'd say is the NHS is extremely good at the provision of a medical intervention. It does not have a good track record at the type of quality, at the type of care and support that we're talking about when we're talking about social care. So I think if you move social care into the NHS, it would be completely unrecognisable to the kind of care and support that hundreds of thousands of people every single day rely on to live the life they want to live, to contribute to their communities and their economy, to connect to their friends and families. It, it wouldn't be that. So if you're talking about moving social care into the NHS, you're talking about having to fundamentally change the NHS and its mindset as well. And I'm not sure that we've got much of a hope of being able to do that. So I, I don't think it would deliver what people who rely on care and support need if we were to bring social care into the NHS. So I think we've got to put people at the heart of our policy proposals and it just doesn't work for me. Greg, and final thought. Well, mine's brief because it was it was similar there to, to Sally's very well made point. I think if we focus on structures, this is the thing that uh, happens time and again. And actually, there are some great examples of multidisciplinary teams delivering integrated care locally across the NHS, social care and other agencies. And it's where teams work together on the ground that integrated care is, is, is should be the focus, because, as I said at the beginning, it's about people um, and it's not about structures of organisations. Well, thank you very much. Um, with that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Um, the event will be available to watch uh, or to listen to on our website shortly. Uh, thank you very much to our three speakers for a brilliant discussion uh, and particular thanks to Future Care Capital for partnering with us on this event. Uh, and thank you to all of those who've watched today. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>